Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. You're listening to a special presentation of the History Voyager, a podcast about history. As always, there is a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very much for listening to mine. Okay, this is a special presentation about, you know, from the History Voyager. It's not going to be about the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, which we're rocking and rolling in. It's going to be about something happening today, COVID-19. Now, why do I want to talk to you about COVID-19? Well, you know, because it's happening now and it's becoming readily apparent to everybody around us, to everybody of any understanding of history, that this is going to be a civilization-changing situation. Not, per se, because of the virus, but because of human beings' reaction to the virus. And I thought, you know, God, I can't be a, a history podcaster and not bring up something that's literally happening right around me. I mean, think about, okay, during the Norman invasions in in England, if there was a podcaster talking about it, what would that sound like? Or think about, you know, if you want to go way out there, think about somebody during the fall of Rome. If somebody could, instead of Mike Duncan doing a podcast at the fall of Rome, think about if you could have podcasters, a string of podcasters, doing podcasts about the fall of Rome. So that's kind of what this is. This is a, I'm doing a podcast right this second about COVID-19. And not about it from a medical standpoint, but about it from a civilizational standpoint, from a society standpoint, and what I think it reveals about us. Because I do, I think it reveals quite a lot. You know, it's easy and trite to say that one of the things that COVID-19, this disease that attacks the respiratory system, reveals about America specifically. I don't know if you can tell people in the digital, digital void, but I'm an American. And one of the things that it's easy and trite to say that it reveals about Americans is that we rely too heavily on private industry to provide us with our social safety net. And that's a gimme, okay? You know, maybe you can find some, you know, ardent right-wingers outside of Washington and outside of politics who would still believe that. And I'm not talking politicians, and I'm not talking think tankers. I'm talking normal humans. I'm sure you could find some people today that would think that. But I think most of us, certainly in my generation, and I'm basically late Gen X, would say that, you know, it turns out we relied too heavily on private industry to provide our social safety net. But I think we did something, I think we did other things that, you know, maybe not led up to this, but certainly contributed to the downfall, the problems. Um, one of the things we did was we decided, or it was decided for us, or it was marketed to us, or however you want to say it, that we, what we should really do is we should live 
as far away from the means of producing food as possible. And we should forget how to produce food because obviously other people will produce that food for us. And we'll just toddle off to the grocery store and, and buy the food and then we can go about our sophisticated urban or suburban lives. And okay, and that worked and it worked to a reasonable good effect until about, I don't know, technically still now, but you can start to see the cracks, or at least I can. I can start to see the cracks. And the thing I always come back to was my granddaddy, who I talk about. I talk about his family, or his wife's family, in the opening episode of The Spanish Flu, where I talk about this man who basically they had a farm in middle Georgia and all of his children all three of his children became professionals on some level one a doctor one an engineer and one a teacher and you know when the when his boys his adult boys were gone and it was just the two of us watching baseball or football or whatever he would always say to me under his breath, and I don't know if he was saying to me or under his breath, the stupidest thing that a man, can, the most foolish thing rather, that a man can do is depend on another man for his food. I don't know why my kids do that. And until, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I really thought, okay, he was a man of his time, didn't understand the world, and obviously this isn't, you know, we're not going to need to be farming like he was a farmer. And now I kind of see, wait a minute. This man was, he had a thought. He might not have expressed it in a way that a, somebody with formal education would have expressed it. But he had a thought. And maybe that thought was right. You know, maybe, just maybe. We set up this society, this interlocking, interwoven society that anything really could have toppled it. Because, I mean, COVID, yes, it's a killer. COVID-19, yes, it's a killer. But it's not killing nearly the people that other pandemics had. Now, I, I hear you, it's early. It's really early in the COVID pandemic and, and all this. But I'm going to read some statistics to you. Okay, let me just minimize this here. All right. So as I'm talking to you now, it is April 10th, 2020. And there are 98,401 deaths from COVID-19. There are 365,072. 722 people who recovered and there are 1,631,310 cases. Now, why did the world essentially, at least the first world, why did the first world decide to lock down for this disease? Well, I think part of the reason was we learned about the Spanish flu. And all these people came up in this, you know, they came up learning about the Spanish flu. The way the people who had dealt with the Spanish flu learned about, you know, the Russian flu. 
And one of the lessons that we learned from the Spanish flu is this thing can go exponential and it can go, it can get out of hand and we don't need it to get out of hand and we don't need it to, you know, to explode in society. And I hear that and I totally agree with it. And I find myself every single day very fortunate and I truly hope that I stay that way and that my family stays that way and my friends stay that way. But I think we're going to come, especially in America, but eventually probably in the rest of the world, we're going to come into this thought where all this let's shelter in place and wait for this thing to peter out or, or wait for them to come up with a vaccine is going to seem like to quote Marie Antoinette or to quote the apocryphal saying of Marie Antoinette let them eat cake it's going to seem like let them eat cake to an awful lot of people if it doesn't already I mean here in America by the numbers you have something like 24 million unemployed and it's useful to remember that unemployment is today a, a service it is not a statistic so therefore, you know, there are people who are not employed who do not qualify to be measured in the unemployment statistic. There's actually quite a few people. So heaven knows how many people are actually unemployed. But I tell you, it's the little things that tell you society doesn't quite work. Um, for example, try to buy toilet paper on Amazon.com right now. Just do it. Just try to buy toilet paper on Amazon.com. And they tell us things like, um, you know, don't hoard toilet paper. Okay, well, if you can't find residential toilet paper, but you can find commercial toilet paper, what what is that telling people? And that's just one sign. Another sign, and it's little, but it's another sign. We get the mail earlier than we've ever gotten the mail before. We get the mail at at noon or sometimes 10 o'clock in the morning where we used to get it at 8, 9 o'clock at night. And that's a function of less traffic. Now, and there's other signs too. I remember I had to make a call to, um, to somewhere and the circuits for that whole town were busy. So said my, my phone. And so I couldn't complete the call. And you think, well, this is a couple of months in. All right. And also, you think about this. There's things that let you know that society isn't exactly normal. Even if you live under a rock and don't keep up with anything and don't have social media, there's little things that let you know. Like, for one, everybody seems polite. And Americans today typically aren't a polite group as a whole that that's the first tell and you see when you go on walks you see different types of people going on these walks like the gym like the gym class the class of people that have gym memberships can't go into the gym so they have to walk in the neighborhood and also the traffic has died down I live in one of the most traffic bound cities in North America, um, which is also, according to a, a meeting I went to 
right before the pandemic, I went to a meeting and I heard that actually my place on the map, my region of the map, is one of the fastest growing regions in the Americas, plural, North and South America. That's amazing. All right, so the traffic has died down to nothing. Zero, zip, <laughs> nil. That's a, you know, a huge tell that there's something going on here. But I want to talk about why and why this, maybe we've got into some wrong thinking. And the thing that comes to mind is, so I'm a late Gen Xer. I'm right on the cusp of Gen X and Millennial. And I can remember as a child learning about how you had to, you know, Ronald Reagan ended the Cold War. And I remember writing that down on a test. I absolutely, I absolutely remember writing that down on a test. And I remember hearing all the time this slow, steady drumbeat all through my childhood of we have to put factories overseas because that's how you get world peace. There used to be this school of thought that said that a country with two McDonald's, a country where both of them had a McDonald's had never been to war with each other. And this was basically espoused by the great powers that be, the, you know, for, for ages. Until recently, it was totally true. But it makes you think. It makes you really wonder. Did they actually believe that? How many of these people believe that? Right? You see what I'm saying? Like, how many folks actually thought in the powers that be corridors that, oh, okay, all we have to really do is get a bunch of, um, you know, the same American culture right around the world and we won't attack each other. I mean, you look at, you know, look at Japan. Japan and America were, were arch enemies in World War II. And now you have Japanese people playing in Major League Baseball. You know, that's, you know, that's a sign of America successfully exporting American culture. Or you look at, say, when, okay, this is something that hasn't left me yet. When Kobe Bryant, the, um, the basketball star, for those of you in the distant future, recently passed away before the COVID virus got wide, I guess. Um, so when Kobe Bryant passed away, there was a story or a video in, I think, Paris. There was a soccer game in Paris that was happening right as it was announced that Kobe Bryant had passed away. And the soccer stadium stopped. Both teams stopped. The people stopped. And they just stopped. The whole thing stopped. And then eventually, the I guess the referees decided, oh, okay, well, we have to you know move this thing along. So they blew a whistle and got the thing up and running again. But the whole thing to me was just amazing. The fact that you could stand in Paris, France, and know the same instant I did that Kobe Bryant had died by crashing into a hillside 
to me that just shows how interconnected we are on some level it just shows how on some level we're basically interconnected I mean basketball was a sport that was created by an American by a Canadian in in America right and until very recently it really hasn't been anything all over the world and now suddenly it's the I think I read the other day it was the one of the highest grossing sports leagues on earth so there you go and that's a sign of America I guess American consumerism and American cultural imperialism all over the world there it is but so we, we took that and we said okay we can unproblematically export our culture all over the world. We can unproblematically aid in this interconnected world that we all are supposed to live in. All right. And we can do this and we can have, you know, people that get as far away from the means of food production as possible and live in these overpriced apartments. Okay. And of course we think probably like the Romans thought, probably like a lot of people thought, a lot of empires thought. You know, this is going to go on forever. I wonder if there were people, and actually I had this thought yesterday as I was looking out at my quiet neighborhood, that's as quiet as I've seen it in years. I thought to myself, I wonder if there were people standing on Hadrian's wall that thought at any moment, this could all fall apart. And then what would I do? Where would I go? What would happen next? I really honestly had that thought. And I'm somebody who's obsessed with history. But I've never had that thought about my country before. So I imagine there's people today having that thought. And, you know... But here's the, the linchpin of why I think we're reacting to deaths around COVID-19 much differently than someone in 1918 reacting to the flu death. Because of the phone, because of the smartphone. There was a video, I, will, I remember it, there was a video I saw of people in a hospital in Italy lying on the floor dying from COVID-19 in the hallways in hospitals in Italy. I saw that. It was what made me get religion, so to say, that we have to, you know, we have to take this disease seriously. And then I get on, what do I get on? I get on the internet, okay? You know, I get on the internet, the purveyor of all knowledge in the world, for better or worse. And I learned that I have asthma and I take blood pressure medicine and those are two things that COVID-19 does not play well with at all so I'm going out of my way to social distance I've in I've gotten groceries through the phone etc and so on and but I'm looking out at this world several weeks into this I guess this sequestration if you will we're sequestering ourselves keeping up with streaming services and learning things about storage capacity in our houses and learning things about why do we have that and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, 
you know, before too long, this is going to get like let them eat cake for an awful lot of people. I mean, okay, I have a friend who is in the real estate market, and he brought up a good point that I didn't even think of because this isn't on my radar at all. The point he brought up was, you know, at some point very soon, the fact that a lot of these apartments and condos are actually owned by people who are using them as basically Airbnb rentals is really going to come home to roost because these places are over leveraged. Okay, these places are over leveraged and people aren't going to be traveling and they aren't going to be staying somewhere. And eventually, he, so he says, and I believe him because he's very good at his job, he says, eventually, we're going to have basically a problem in the real estate market. All right, well, I've got another situation I, that I can't get out of my head. I think back to the 2008 recession, the so-called 2008 recession, and I think back to the signs that I saw I was, a, I was a movie reviewer at a small newspaper in 2005 and 2006. And I was seeing signs that, and I'm no trained economist or in economic theory per se, but I was seeing signs even back then that there was something wrong in the housing market. And what I was seeing was I was seeing these very young people go off into very expensive condos to live at night, to sleep at night, to live there. And then I, I talked to a young woman who said, well, she's in, technically, you know, her father, she tells her father what, what she's doing, and her father said, well, I want you to get into that with the bank that you think you're working at and see what you're really up to. Well, according to the research she did, the bank essentially had her living in this condo so that they could write it off as, you know, a place to live. But essentially, she was paid essentially a pittance to live in this high-priced condo under the understanding that at any moment, this bank could call her up and tell her to vacate. And she thought that was an ideal situation for a college student. Well, I looked at that and I thought, you know, that sounds all right for you, but that's no way to, I mean, you've got all these condos and, and whatever. And at the end of the day, what are you doing? There's nobody really living there, really staying there. And sure enough, in 2008, the whole thing crashed. And, you know, there's a lot of good movies out there that, that dramatize this event. But so I got to thinking about what would this look like today? Well, I mean, I'll never forget this. A few years ago, I was describing Uber to my 80-something-year-old uncle. And back in his day, he would have been a very intelligent, you know, with it kind of person. You would have wanted his opinion on a whole host of issues. So I was describing Uber to him, and he'd never heard of Uber. And I was describing it to him, and he, th he said, he paused, and he said, you know, you know what, Ben? I'll tell you something. 
there's a poverty. There's like poverty in this country hiding in plain sight. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, think about it, Ben. We've always had taxis. And we've always had phones. And if there was a huge market for people wanting to, what did you call it, Ben? Rideshare? Well, if you wanted to rideshare, you could have just called up a taxi. And But obviously, Ben, people didn't do that. And the thing is, when, you, when you're in my county and you look at the number of Ubers in my county, the thing that you come away with is that for better or worse, richer or poorer, my county is essentially using Uber as a way to get out of having some sort of mass transit, or at least a better mass transit situation. And what I think about that is, I think about what my uncle was saying, especially now. And I'm thinking, you know what, he's right. He's absolutely right. But I mean, there's other stuff too, like you can go starting a few years ago you could find any hotel and in my county and you'd see school buses stop at the hotels and let kids out well then I find out you know the on the radio I find out there's some kind of there's a an incredibly large percentage of people who live in hotels in my county they live there and I'm thinking, okay, that's weird. But so, you know, I look at the job market. You look at the job market, and there, people aren't paying what they used to be paid. And a lot of very, what somebody might have thought were very good jobs, don't actually pay a whole lot. And you begin to think, well, the real estate market doesn't, isn't in concert with the realities of the job market for an awful lot of people. And the reason I'm bringing this up when I'm talking about COVID-19 is I think when I think about my friend who's a real estate agent and I think about what my uncle said and I think about what I've learned, I think we're about to see what's going to happen when you get a whole bunch of people that spend a whole lot on their, spend a whole lot of their check on rent, right? And suddenly they don't have a check to spend. And suddenly they don't have health insurance because there's a lot of people unemployed and there's probably going to be a lot of people unemployed by next week. And I think we're going to see what happens. And, you know, I'm sure there's some Marxist trained people out there that are going to say, well, this is the rise of, of Marxism or Marx foretold this, you know, because I went to school. I've got news for you. I went to college too. And, it was a very good college, and I have myself a very advanced education in history and political thought and whatever else, political theory. And I'm just saying, you know, I don't know if that is Marxism or not, if Marx would correctly identify that or not. But what I do know is that I, I think about this, and I think we're going to come to a day of reckoning with our system here very quickly. And I don't know if very quickly means next week or next month or by June. I don't know. But we're going to come to a, a day of reckoning very fast. And, you know, 
and this whole world we've set up about interconnectivity and we all get to see what goes on in Italy and we all get to see what goes on in Spain and we all get to see what goes in LA and all this. We're going to see this and this is going to collide. And I, I honestly think, and I've had discussions online about this with people. I honestly think we're going to get back to farming in some way or other, because one of the legacies of the, the Great Recession, one of the continual legacies of the Great Recession is there are people that still haven't gotten right after the Great Recession. You know, and now this, I mean, everybody is saying this is an abyss. I mean, one of the things that I remember about the Great Recession was while the Great Recession was happening, while it was ongoing in 2008, not before, which, because I think it was going on actually in 05 and 06 in some ways. But, you know, while it was happening, like quote-unquote happening, there were respected people that were denying that it was going on. One of the big differences today is you don't see that. You don't see respected people saying, oh, well, it's not happening. Don't, you know, don't believe your eyes. Don't believe your ears. No, everything's fine. Nobody says that. That's the difference. That's a huge difference. But I don't know that, you know, I, I don't know that you'll be able to cut it back on as fast as some people think. Because in order to cut it back on, you're going to need to hire the people to cut it back on because presumably you've laid off HR people. And before you can hire other people, you need to hire HR people. And the other thing is, with the applicant tracking system, what the applicant tracking system is great at, which is the computerized way we hire people now, right? Or we used to hire people back when we were doing that. So what the applicant tracking system is, is it's set up to take people and move them laterally, right? What happens when your industry is gone? What happens when, you know, your industry is gone and and you can't you know move laterally you have to change jobs you have to reinvent yourself and also here's the other thing that's different and this I think you know no one talks about this at least I haven't heard anybody other than me talk about it this is going to be the first recession since we've been having these where nobody goes back to college because before, what you would do is you would go to college to learn new skills. And now you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to want to do that because you're not going to want to con con you know, contact anything. You're not going to want to get a disease. But also, plus, like, it's become readily apparent to an awful lot of people that college is becoming less and less valuable because it's getting more and more expensive. Now, that's why is it getting more and more expensive? You know, is it the voluminous administration? Is it the first-class amenities that all colleges have to have? Is it, you know, whatever? But it is. Are states shirking their responsibilities? Perhaps. I mean, certainly they are. 
until you start to ask yourself, why do we have this to begin with? Because the whole reason we had it to begin with was to create taxpayers. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the results are speaking for themselves and we're speaking for themselves before COVID-19. Now, after COVID-19, it's going to be a whole different world. It's going to be a whole different world economically. It's going to be a whole different world in the world of work. I mean, okay, I'll give you an example. Look at the ad. Look at advertising. Right? Look at advertising. The longer this goes on with the sequestration and having to live with people and blah, blah, blah. The longer this goes on, the less the less people are going to want to buy new stuff. So there goes advertising, right? And that's just advertising. What about construction? Okay, if you can work from home, why do you need office buildings, they'll say, eventually, right? So there goes construction, you know, and, you know, I could see bandwidth, internet bandwidth being a, a thing people need. So I could see that coming online. And I could see, you know, I bet you anything, we're going to get way better grocery stores than we have now. I bet you we're going to get more of them and better. I don't know. And speaking of that, I don't know what's going to happen in the restaurant scene across America. I mean, I think, you know, there's going to be some toddlers. There's toddlers out there today that are going to hear us when they're older talk about Chinese places and Italian places and whatever else. And, you know, they're going to say, well, what was that? And we're going to say, well, there was a time back in the day, Johnny or Susie, there was a time when you could go out to eat and people would bring you food and you paid money for it. Now, maybe I'm being facetious and maybe I'm not. And these are just some of the wide ranging thoughts that I'm having about COVID-19. But they're by no means all of the thoughts. I think one of the biggest changes that COVID-19 is teaching me personally, well, not just COVID-19, but COVID-19 plus, say, what's happening in the world, is that the nuclear family is just essentially unsustainable. You know, this idea of mom, dad, and kids, you're going to need other adults. It's going to have to get like like it was before. And it is for an awful lot of people. But, I mean, it's going to have to get like it was before. And one of the things, and there's kind of a long history to this, right? One of the things that was the legacy, at least in my town and probably in a lot of your towns, of the Great Recession was that apartment renting got a lot more expensive right after the recession. Like, not right after, but maybe a year or two after. Apartment renting got a lot very expensive. And they always would come back, and the developers, I'm saying, always would come back and they would always say, well, that's because, you know, there's these fire codes and we have to institute the fire codes that you people want. And if you people didn't want the fire codes, then we wouldn't be building as expensive a place to live and you know okay i don't want to live in a place that burns down so 
part of me, I don't know. I, I kind of want to see that. I really want to see it emphasize the word want. But I don't know. Do you have to have... Okay, like I'll give you an example that just blows my mind. It's actually cheaper to rent a house than an apartment. Than, than a like a one-bedroom apartment. That's crazy. That's literally crazy. And I'll tell you another thing that is readily apparent to anybody living in this market who looks in apartments that is also, frankly, a little bit insane. Is And I think this is because of the phone. Again, with the cell phone. Or the smartphone. And I think also it's because, look, I live in Metro Atlanta, and I think, well, I know Metro Atlanta is basically, at least before all this, and maybe it will be again, was essentially a, a desirable place to live for a lot of people. And so we were getting people from all over the country, all over the world, really, who wanted to live here. But the thing is, when you go on the phone and look for a place to live, or you go on the internet, what's amazing is that a lot of places have very similar rents, and they're very, very far apart in, in space. And that's strange to me. That's really strange. But I put that down to the phone. Now, what am I saying here? What, how, how does this relate to COVID? I think that COVID is sort of the, the thing that pushes everything down the hill. I really do. I think COVID-19 is going to cause paradigms to shift. And I think it's going to cause paradigms to shift the way lots of things cause paradigms to shift. I mean, one of the things about Spanish flu, one of the big important things of the Spanish flu was the Spanish flu was proof. People had proof that there was this thing on the earth and it was called a human. And there was actually no real difference biologically between the different groups and races of humans. And that was, you know, that had, believe it or not, pretty destabilizing effects throughout the world. And I think that you know, at least in my country, at least in America, I think that COVID-19 is going to lay open some cracks, some mistakes that we've been making. You know, you can go online, or I've gone online, and people talk about, you know, the austerity measures of the last 40 years. It's going to, you know, somehow they say, well, America in the 1960s with 1960s style governance would have handled COVID differently with our technology. We would, we would have handled it better. And, you know, I'm not really here to discuss that because as a historian, and this isn't going to sound trendy for history people, but I don't really like to get into um, historical what-ifs a lot. I'm not, I'm not really good at that. 
you know, like, because if you're going to get into what ifs, you could really take that way far. Like, okay, what if the austerity measures hadn't happened? Well, then what else would have happened? You, you know, you're not going to live in a utopia. Right? And that's what COVID-19 has shown me personally, is how fragile we are. And I think, you know, it's we're making, we're deliberately saying to, to COVID, you know, where they liken it to a tactical retreat. And I'm happy with my pre-existing conditions to tactically retreat. But I'm saying at some point, you're going to get people saying, okay, no, I have to, we have to reboot this. You know, yes, I understand, but I also don't want to be homeless. Right? And, I mean, and that's going to happen in America. It's, it's going to happen other places too. I mean, you know, people love to talk about European style democratic socialism or the Canadian style, this, that, or the other. Um, okay. So, are you just going to completely reboot everything in 18 months? I think we're technically almost 17 months now. Or, you know, maybe, maybe not. And if so, if I tell you what, if every other country does that and does it successfully and America does not, then guess what? America is going to falter and it's going to falter hard. And I'm talking Roman Empire falling hard. Because if you have 24 million unemployed today, which I don't think it's 24 million, what are you going to have next week? 30? 36? You know, already we've eclipsed the Great Recession, I mean the Great Depression, in terms of unemployed people. You know. So, I mean... And we're orders of magnitude over the Great Recession. And the thing you have to remember about the Great Recession is the Great Recession, as I've said, I think started earlier. But the Great Recession had a much stronger, did its work on a much stronger working situation than this did, you know. I mean, you talk to people about, you know, go go talk to somebody about having a $10 an hour job where the person before them had made much more than that in the same type of job. Maybe not at the same place, but at the same type of job. And you begin to see that the un... The, you know, the American economy has had been hollowed out. Maybe by the austerity measures, but also maybe by the work of the Great Recession. And, and I guess the, the rebuild from that was nowhere near as complete as we would like to pretend it was. As it would become convenient to pretend it was. And so now you have COVID working on this. And, you know, the thing that you have to remember is because we're all interconnected and, and we can all see these stories, 
And these stories that we're going to be seeing that we haven't seen yet are going to be impacting people in a way that they've never impacted people before. I mean, you know, it's like I said, you know, all this interconnectivity, it, it tells everybody all of our stories. But at what cost? It's like we've taken this phone and and we've lost the ability to forget. And we've lost the ability to just look at our little corner of the world. To only really focus on our little corner of the world. And I think about that. And I think about that a lot. I think about how, and this is one of the things one of the reasons why I love history so much is history is, in a way, like a sci-fi novel, right? Or like a sci-fi show. Because you don't have to go too far back in time before things get pretty different. You know, and people's, people are still people. But, like, how they look at the world might be a little different, right? So... Technology, you know, especially big technological leaps, like with the steam engine and the Industrial Revolution, which was technological, but it was also social, um, those have destabilizing effects on the humans around them. Well, you know, think about, think about this, think about us and the social media and the ubiquitous pocket computer that we almost jokingly call a phone. We haven't thought about the wider technological ramifications and the wider social ramifications. We haven't thought this out at all. Like, yes, it's neat to have this device that you can watch highlights on or listen to a podcast. I hope you're listening to my podcast. Obviously, you're listening to my podcast. Thank you. But we haven't thought as a society about the wider impact of what it means to have a pocket computer and what it means to be able to talk and connect with, you know, I can... I can talk to a friend in Indonesia and a man in Canada and a man in India and a man in Italy all in the same day. And I'm, I haven't left my room and my, and my blinds are closed. And I haven't left my room. But yet I've interacted with these people. And I've had real meaningful conversations with these people. But yet I haven't left my room and I... You know, we haven't really talked about that as a culture. Like, what is the ramifications of not looking at just your little corner of the world like everybody else used to do? What, what, is, what is the ramifications of, of noticing the entire globe? If not all at once, you could certainly turn and, and go here and, and go there. Right, And nobody really has ever had to do that before. 
and I don't know. It's it's a thought I've had. It's a thought I keep having. Anyway, so I guess this is part one of a ongoing talk about COVID-19. And I guess I'm going to intersperse this uh, in the regular podcast of the Spanish flu. But I thought I'd get some of this COVID stuff out of the way because I keep talking about it in the podcast. And I'll do another one of these if, if the, uh, I guess, if the urge strikes, so to say, I'll, I'll do another one of these. Anyway, um, this is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. And as always, there's a zillion podcasts out there. And thank you much for listening to mine. And I'll hope to catch you guys later.